Carson, who is our lead pastor, is going to be preaching from Galatians 6, 11 through 18. Um, you can find that on page 975 in the House Bibles. Um, but if you would, please stay with me if you are able, um, as I read God's Word beginning in verse 11 of Galatians 6. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. So far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is God's word. Um, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for just all that you've taught us throughout um, our entire series through Galatians about your grace and your reconciliation. Um, and I just ask that you speak through Kevin today as he preaches to us. And I pray that all of us would have soft hearts um, as we listen and um, accept the truth um, that you're teaching to us today. Amen. Well, welcome once again. I get the privilege of going to visit our team at Corumdale in North Carolina next week, so I won't be with us next week, but um, today we'll wrap up our time in the book of Galatians, then we're going to soon get to the book of Matthew, and I'm excited for that, but we've spent the basically a year, the past year, walking through this book verse by verse, and throughout these pages we've seen this idea over and over that there are two ways to live, and only two. We either live by works and serve our pride, or we live by grace and pursue His glory. Here's what that looks like. We try to do all the right things and none of the wrong, and we, we point to our score sheet or grade card, and we say, look, I'm good enough, celebrate me. Or we point to the cross of Jesus. We raise our hands toward our resurrected Lord and we proclaim, you alone are good. Thank you, Jesus. We see these two ways so clearly in these concluding words as well, verses 11 through 18 of chapter 6. We've seen them throughout this letter. Paul wrote to this church in Galatia where, again, you have false teachers that have infiltrated this body of believers. They sold this idea to those Christians that by going back to the Old Testament law, they could somehow prove themselves to God. Paul writes this church that he loves so much and he's trying to wake them up. He desperately wants them to live and even lead in a way that God intends and is truly best for them. He wants this church, God wants us, to give up all these efforts to try to impress others and to rest in the finished work of Jesus alone. Let's dive into the, the passage. We first see the path of resisting Jesus. 
Paul is talking to these disciples and he's telling them, hey, look at those guys over there, those, those teachers that have your ear. Do you really want to live like that? How are they living? What does it look like to resist Jesus? Posey, first of all. Posey. Verse 12 says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. So remember, those religious leaders, they're saying to those Gentile believers, those non-Jews, to be good Christians, you first of all have to be good Jews. And they're trying to convince them that it means following the food laws, keeping the Jewish festivals, and yeah, even being circumcised. But what's their motivation? It says to make a good showing. Paul says this even more in verse 13. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So here I think it's the point. They're keeping of the laws like circumcision and their recruitment of others to keep the laws with them was all about making themselves look good and giving them something to boast about. Resisting Jesus means a life of posing. Trying to, give, trying to keep up appearances. Living out the true meaning of the word hypocrite. Being a stage player, an actor, to, to those around you. Scrambling to cover up your nakedness with fig leaves. And, if you didn't know, that doesn't work well. You could, you could cover up important things for a while, but you're still naked. In the first part of verse 13, the apostle says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Yeah, they might have kept that rule. But there were lots of others that they weren't keeping at all, especially the command to love. We have to be honest with ourselves that we all fall so incredibly short. They're not just posing here, they're second cowering. Cowering. Do you see that? Verse 12 says why they're trying to push this on their friends. It's also about fear, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So if they let it all go and they trust Jesus, their Jewish friends would hate them. But not only that, their Gentile peers would also give them grief. Clinging to Jesus, what he came to do would bring hate from all sides. And that's the same thing for us. Our religious friends will tell us, yeah, trust in Jesus, yeah. But you also have to dress this way and vote that way. Always do this, never do that. If we say, I'm justified by Christ alone, we're going to get flack because it threatens their house of cards. Our irreligious friends, on the other hand, will also give us trouble. They'll tell us that we can just choose our own way, that talking about sin is dumb, that we don't need Jesus at all. But either way, people will resist Christ and His cross, and we can choose to cower and continue to pose, but that's tragic. Maybe you're like me, you, you spend a little too much time on Facebook and Instagram. But have you thought about what's really going on there? I grew up in the 80s, and I grew up with the iconic Rock'em Sock'em Robots game. If any of you have seen that or played that, I think that we grew up at that point kind of projecting ahead and maybe fearing being attacked by robots down the road. But I don't think any of us saw what was coming at us today. Have you thought about how all of us here are getting completely owned by robots online? Why does everything we read on Facebook confirm our biases and get us really angry all the time? Well, that's what it's supposed to do, right? That's the business model. The bots are sucking us in, 
they're destroying us. We're getting owned by algorithms, whatever that even means. You know, we're getting sucked into this comparison game that just leads to more posing, to more cowering. Maybe you're, you're on Instagram. Maybe you're, you're younger, you know, younger than me. Do you ever look on there? I mean, I'm on there a fair amount as well. But do you ever look on there and get discouraged about your appearance? Wish you could go on a vacation like those people. Do you see this product suddenly that it just seems like it was made for you? Yeah. And that you couldn't possibly live without. And you find yourself getting depressed and you wish you had a better life. These devices that can so easily be good, be used for good, can encourage us to build an identity on other things than Jesus, and they can encourage us to resist what he offers to us. What does that path of resisting him leave us with? Well, deep insecurity, right? Where we're fixated on things on the outside of us, and we find ourselves really empty on the inside. Where we're living by works, we're serving our pride, and that's tragic. In resisting Jesus, we consign ourselves to a life of insecurity, of making comparisons, of posing and cowering, of never feeling like we measure up or have enough. And friends, that's not how we were made to live. It's not. It's hard to believe, but in the next couple of weeks, my daughter is going to turn 16. She's going to drive a hand-me-down Honda Accord. Not bad. When I, when I um, came of age, I waited about a year because that's what nerds do. And then I spent about, I spent $750 and bought a Ford Mustang II. Now, if you think, a Mustang? Wow. Well, look up a Mustang II. Okay? It's number two for a reason. Okay? It's, a, um, it's a rebranded Pinto, which is arguably the worst car of all time. But when my, a few years later, when my wife turned 16, what did her daddy buy her but a brand new Mustang GT? Okay, wow, a convertible too. That's a Mustang. Now, if you look at her senior pictures with her pose, posing by that car, she looks like she was on an al album cover or maybe was in one of those 80s, you know, hair band videos or something. I say this to just point out who was, who was the geek and who was the cool kid in this relationship, but I think you already knew that. Well, anyway, she likes to tell the story of a high school day where she woke up with some unwelcome acne on her forehead. And she just thought, well, I'm just going to throw a baseball cap on my head. And so she got in her Mustang, went to school, you know, went through the day, sat in the lunchroom with her hat covering her forehead. She didn't think anything about it. But then the next day, she looked around, and several other girls were, what were they doing? They were wearing hats. Okay, so that was her. Okay? A few years before, I decided I was going to finally buy a pair of parachute pants. Now, I don't know if you know what those are. All the kids were wearing them. They were these ultra-thin nylon pants, zippers and pockets everywhere. So they seemed cool, but also kind of practical, I guess, especially if you had a lot of pencils and pens and stuff in them. Um, I wanted to fit in, so I just had to have some. So I remember my parents taking me to Kansas City and me picking out a black shirt and a black, black matching pants, and they had these bold red accents on them. Right? And I remember getting dressed the next day, anxiously heading off to school, and I quickly realized that I had, yeah, overdone it, right? As, as the kids say, it was, it was, it was cringeworthy, right? And completely backfired in trying to impress people. I'd failed. There's this way to live where we're, we're deeply insecure, right? Trying to fit in, trying to not get left out, and then there's throwing on your cap and not giving a rip. 
right? You know who you are. You can just be yourself. In the gospel of Jesus, we are offered a much, much better way. Well, we second see the path here of trusting Jesus. In Him, we experience the opposite of what we just talked about. A deep security. A peace on the inside. We, we know we're sinners. We know we need His help. We trust Him. His perfect life of obedience is given to us. His sacrificial death on the cross forgives us completely. We're fully accepted. It spells the end of this life trying to perform. It puts to death this need to measure up before God, before others. That's where this path of trusting Jesus takes us. I want you to notice with me five things that flow out of this life that we see in this passage. And the first thing is the most obvious thing. It's joy. Listen to the first half verse 14 again. Really a, a summary of what Paul is driving at. Really what the Bible is driving at. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how can I boast in these other things? I'm going to boast in Jesus. Scholars say that, that Paul's boasting here refers to what can be called exulting. That's E-X-U-L-T. Now we don't use that word a lot. We might be familiar with the word exalting when we think about worship. About lifting up Jesus in our minds and hearts. Exulting has this idea of rejoicing in something in a way that makes much of that thing. And here we have something that's so much greater for us to rejoice in. When we come to understand what the cross of Jesus offers, it brings us deep and lasting joy. And as we rejoice in what he's done, as we boast in him, we bring him glory. Right? John Piper has put it this way. God's zeal for His glory and our quest for joy, they become one. They become the same pursuit. The life of Jesus brings joy. We want something. We long for something to boast in. That's what we're made to boast in. What else do we see? Second, freedom. That's found in the end of verse 14, where he says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. People today throw around this expression. Maybe you have. He's dead to me. That's dead to me. What do we mean by that? The person, the thing, what he demands, what it wants, it doesn't affect me anymore. It doesn't control me. That's the idea that Paul is communicating here, what God wants for us. Now, when he uses the word world here, it's not like he's saying that we don't care about the globe or the people that live on it. He's not talking about hating or avoiding God's creation. No. Often the Bible uses the world to refer to this fallen evil system that stands against God. Paul's saying that this sinful world that's trying to pull him in toward this posturing and toward all this anxiety, that is dead to him and he's dead to it. It no longer has any power, it no longer has any sway, any control over his life. He can throw on the hat and just roll into school. He can look on Facebook without turning into a trollosaurus, right? He's free and that's what the Lord offers us. Freedom from the bots, the bullies, from the game entirely. Third, newness. Verse 15. 
For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but a new creation. Paul's not going to get sucked into thinking he's greater because he's been circumcised. And he's saying no one should get down because they haven't undergone that procedure. Neither of those things matter. Not rules we keep or rules we don't keep. What matters, he says, so clearly, is a new creation. So, thinking broadly about creation. The Lord wants us to care about and care for what he has made. And he wants us to enjoy his creation. He speaks to us through it. His creation should drive us to worship, not it, but Him. It, it may be fallen now, but one day God is going to make all things new. He'll renew this world. He'll restore it. All brokenness will be gone. That day is coming, and it's going to be a great day. But even now, the new creation is breaking into time and space. Again, one day He'll resurrect our bodies. If you didn't know that, we'll be embodied souls forever and ever. But he is giving life to souls right now if we believe. He's making us new from the inside out. He's raising us from death to life. The first way of living we've been talking about tries to go outside in. Right? We try to clean up the outside with hope that it will permeate and do something inside. But that never works. No true change ever happens that way. Paul Tripp says it's like going out and taking a stapler and trying to staple apples to the branches of a tree. It won't work. It doesn't change what kind of tree it is. Jesus changes at the heart level, at our root, the trunk of the tree. He turns us into a whole new type of plant that bears fruit for God. He gives us life. He makes us new. He makes us new creations. Here's a fourth thing that Jesus gives, blessing. Check out what sounds like a benediction, a prayer that Paul gives in verse 16. And ask for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. We'll get to the last part here in a second. But he says, for all those who hear his words and embrace this gospel, peace and mercy are theirs. Peace and mercy are ours. Peace with God, first of all. This division between God the Holy One and us as sinners, that division is taken away. Peace among us, the people of God. Jesus brings us together as a body by His blood. And even peace inside us comes from Him. The conflict, the turmoil in our souls is removed. In the glorious gospel, we have peace inside here. For those who keep striving, who keep resisting, though, judgment awaits. We don't like to talk about that, but the Bible is so clear. Not just for the bad things we've done, but for the good things that we've tried to do apart from Him to earn His favor. But for those who will put down their fists and lay down their hammers, there is so much mercy available. God's mercy, His kindness is given to us today, and we will receive it also at the last day in full when we're welcomed into His presence. Trusting in Jesus involves blessing the peace and mercy of God. Fifth, the Spirit through Paul gives us something else in the gospel, belonging. Belonging. He says in verse 16, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. 
upon the Israel of God. If you've been with us during this study, you might remember a theme that came through in chapter 3. In verse 9, the apostle says, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Further down, in verse 14, he says, In Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Finally, in, in verse 29, he says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So in that day especially, and the false teachers there are really taking this and working it, you had Jews and you had everybody else. You had this group called the Gentiles. And Paul is saying that division is, is going away. It's gone. You get the same idea that comes through in the book of Romans. Where God is saying, as he's saying here, to these Gentiles, and that's you and me, if you believe, you are a part of the people of God. You're a member of this new, greater Israel that God is forming from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You are, together, are the Israel of God. So what's another amazing blessing of the gospel being brought into this community of faith? Not just believing, but belonging. Welcomed among God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, to this place where we can stop putting on a show, we can stop living in fear, we can throw away the fig leaves, we can be ourselves clothed fully in the righteousness of Christ, we can be fully known and fully accepted, not just by God, by one another, we can truly belong. So joy, freedom, newness, blessing, belonging, these are all beautiful gifts that God gives us in the gospel. My wife, you, you met her a little bit ago, that she would say that back then, even with all that swag, she didn't have any of these things, right? She was covering up her hurt. The hat didn't work at all. What does this life trusting Jesus give us? It gives us, again, deep security on the inside, in our hearts, where we live by His grace and we seek out His glory, that's what God made us for. It's what's truly best for us. But to get there, we have to give up and turn away from that other feudal life. Emmanuel Church in Nashville just released a, a worship album this week. And throughout the album, which I, I like, it's not exactly my style, but I, I like, um, they have these spoken interludes scattered throughout. And in one of them, Pastor T.J. Timms, I think he describes so well who God is and where he wants to take, it, take us. And he says, quoting 1 John kind of at the beginning, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. No hidden agendas, no skeletons in the closet. Honesty is the atmosphere of God, and he's inviting us in. So we all have a choice to make. We can be honest, or we can look impressive, but we can't be both. We can hide in the dark and keep quiet about our sins and drift further into isolation. Or we can walk in the light where the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. We can be known. All we have to do is lose our impressiveness. All we have to do is step out into the light of His holiness and let Him do the rest. Our sin for His righteousness. Only Jesus enables us to live in a way that God intends and that is truly best. 
but he'll also enable us to lead in a healthier way. And that's where I want to turn next, to talk about leadership. Jeff made the comment last week that he felt a little awkward talking about how you should treat pastors as a pastor. Today will feel a little bit strange as I talk about how leaders should serve as a leader. But I'm looking out at people who are leaders in our church. I'm looking out at others who will be leaders in our, in our church. But also, if, if leadership is in big part influence, so many of you have more of that than you realize, right? You're, you're leading offices or managing business. You know, you're leading families. You're heading up group projects. You have people looking at you. You have people observing you. Even if you don't realize it, you're having influence. And you can do that by works for your pride or by grace and for his glory. And everyone's making that choice, whether you're, you know, an executive in a corporation or if you're working at a convenience store. That those tensions, those identity struggles are happening everywhere. Now we don't really know what the status, the formal status was of these Judaizers in this Galatian church. But they were having some powerful influence. And I want you to also see here two ways that we can lead as well. Now, these may be obvious, having read this for you, but you first see the path of using people. Using people. Isn't that what those false teachers are doing? Verse 12. They're trying to get, it says, the Galatian Christians to go along with circumcision so they can make a good showing in the flesh. So they wouldn't be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Verse 13 says their true desire was that they could boast in the flesh over those disciples in that church. Here's what's so common in leadership and what is a temptation. Surrounding yourself with people who do what you want, they make you feel validated, they give you credibility, they give you a platform, you manipulate them, they make you look good. It's, it's leadership driven by deep insecurity. You go about using people, and you end up harming people. There's a second path that we see here that you may not catch is, is obviously here of serving people. Isn't this what Paul is doing? Look, look back at verse 11. These strange words. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So the Apostle Paul here isn't drawing attention to his graphic design skills. He's not saying his, his hands are weak or his eyesight is poor. This is Paul saying how important that letter and that conclusion is for him to hear. He's, he's grabbing the pen from his letter writer, which he had and people had in that day. He's taking it. He's going to the scroll and he's increasing the font size. He's putting it in, in bold letters and he's appealing to his authority in their lives. They have abandoned the gospel, and he's saying, you are in danger. Authority is something that we resist today. It's cool to fight against authority. But I want you to hear, it's something that's given by God, and it's for our good. Yes, it can be abused. It has. But it doesn't have to be. It's one of God's gifts to us. When those around us, leaders, yeah, but even fellow members, tell us hard things when we get a little soft. When we do that, we serve. And that's what Paul is doing here. Look also at verse 17. 
from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I don't know why, but I just thought that was humorous the, the, when I read it for the first time recently. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Here we see Paul's vulnerability. It's like he's saying, guys, can you stop doing this? Seriously, you're killing me here. He's probably taking a bit of a dig at the Judaizers. You know, they're talking about the circumcision marks. He's saying, I have the marks of Jesus on my body. The scars that come from truly following him and sharing him with others. He's revealing his hurts, his suffering, his sorrow to those Galatian Christians. He's being vulnerable to them. Leaders don't just say hard things when people get soft. They do all they can to try to stay soft when people are hard. They let themselves get close and open up who they really are. The answer to our fear isn't to abandon authority, to reject it altogether. It's to have it, it's to pursue it in tandem with vulnerability. It's easy for leaders to just want to embrace the authority part. Right? Because it's cool, it's, you get power, but also because vulnerability hurts so much. And it's also easier for those following to just want a talking head. Someone they can stay distant from and, and not really want leaders to open themselves up. But we're all better off if both of those things go together, authority and vulnerability. Andy Crouch talks about the interrelationship between those things. In some of his writings in the diagram, uh, dictators, abusers, are in the top left. Authority without vulnerability. The, the oppressed are in the bottom right. Vulnerability without authority. In the bottom left are infants, children, maybe retired CEOs, politicians who just go to live on an island to finish up their days. The top right quadrant is the path of Jesus where we serve well and we help one another, and that leads to flourishing. Where we open our mouths and we speak truth, we open up our lives and give away grace, we resist this urge to keep distance from one another out of fear, we offer our presence to those around us in faith, we go just knowing that we're gonna acquire scars, but we wear those humbly like tattoos that identify us with Jesus. Because he's the one who gave everything for love. In this day, when authority is resisted, and in this age where people say they want vulnerability but so often don't, will you allow leaders to at times call you out? Will you allow them to call you in? Not perfect leaders, not perfect pastors, broken men calling out to broken people. Wounded men appealing to wounded people. Leaders who fall short themselves, but really, really want to serve. They want to help. Will you let them be in relationship with you where they can not only say, you're about to destroy your life, stop, but also say at times, you're breaking my heart. I'm sad. What about with your fellow members? You've given them authority in your lives. That's what membership does, to bring with them, the authority of the word, will you listen to them? Will you let them serve you? Will you receive that? And with that, will you welcome their weakness, their struggle, and love them in that and through that as well? Will you 
Christian, will you member, will you love those around you in hard ways? Lovingly at times calling out brothers and sisters when they stray. Will you take risks even if that hurts? Will you resolve to cast away the fig leaves and let people see all of you? Or will you put up a front and live out of fear? That's not the place of flourishing. Let's be a people that makes tough decisions, that has hard conversations. Let's admit our mistakes. Let's hand out apologies like candy. Let's confess sin. Let's seek feedback. Let's open up our lives to one another. Let's pour them out for each other. Let's together continue to build a place where we don't use each other, but we truly serve one another, where we don't harm, but help. Two ways to live again. We've seen them here in Galatians, but we see them throughout the Bible, all the way back to the beginning, where Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they decide to live by their own works, to pursue their own pride. Instead of rejoicing in God's goodness and His grace and giving Him glory. They bought into the serpent's lie, and we do so much of the time as well. Jesus descended from heaven. He walked the road for us, perfectly obeying His Father, always glorifying, always glorifying Him. He took the path that we deserve to the cross and died in our place for people like us that always seem to lean back into our works, thinking too much about ourselves. If you and I trust in Jesus, if we embrace this good news, we can have the security that we want so badly, and with it we can have all the joy and freedom and newness and blessing and belonging that God wants us to experience. It'll, it'll transform the way we live along with the way we lead. We can boast in our hearts as we were made to do about Christ and what he's done. And we can do that to others as well. Like Jesus, we can speak with authority. We can live with vulnerability. We can give up our lives like Paul does here. We can live in the hope that Paul gives us in the last sentence of the book. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. What an amazing thought to think that you, Jesus, fully in your rights to remain in heaven forever, reigning, would come down and open up your heart and, and life, allow your body to be hurt and killed for us. That distance, that just um, overwhelming distance you bridged so you could bring us to your Father. We praise you and thank you for that, Lord. Um, allow the reality of that to just change the way we see ourselves, the way we see others, the way we walk in this world, the way we handle whatever gifts or responsibility you would give us, I pray. In Jesus' name.